Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Dust is a major exposure source to this cocktail of chemicals, whether it's a volatile chemicals or semi-volatile chemicals like phthalates, which in all these fragranced items, or if it's the pesticides that you're tracking in from walking through your neighbor's yard or your yard or the park that you just went to. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, on to the show. Do you need to detox? January is really a time where the word detox gets thrown around and people spew all kinds of craziness on both sides of the fence. But here's the thing. We need to show respect where respect is due, my friends. Detox is amazing, and I happen to have a pretty intimate connection and knowledge on what detox looks like and when it is slowed. From waking up with a puffy face or your eyes being swollen or retaining water weight or having skin stuff like acne, eczema, etc. pop up or identifying as a sweaty person, not handling alcohol like I did when I was 21, not waking up energized, waking up in the middle of the night, even some interesting eye symptoms I can trace to my detox systems. So what do you do? Well, thank God this is a podcast and not a Twitter post because it doesn't fit in 140 characters. When people ask me questions like, what do you think of this chlorella supplement or dandelion tea or juice cleanse? I want to sit down and give you the 101 on what's happening inside your body so you know exactly if and what that tea or supplement will or will not help. That's why I'm doing a live detox masterclass on January 8th. Don't worry, a replay will be available if you register for the live version. In my Detox Masterclass, you'll get the Detox 411 of what's going on on the inside and outside of your body, plus simple shifts you can make to make these systems work better. You'll get how often you should give your body some love on your detox pathways so your skin, digestion, energy, and just your body in general runs at its absolute best. You'll also get my two-week detox protocol that you can use, then rinse and repeat to affect everything from how much fluid you're retaining to improving sleep and energy to how much you sweat to that bare nose that you have. I've been wanting to do this forever and we're finally doing it. So 
Just go to kristabigler.com forward slash detox to take my do you need to detox quiz and register for this jam packed masterclass. You do not want to miss it. So we'll have this link in the show notes as well, but it's kristabigler.com forward slash detox. I'll see you there. All right. Today on The Less Stressed Life, I have Laura Adler, who is someone I met about a year ago in her hometown of Portland in a class. And she is really, I feel when I think about environmental toxins, she is the person I think of. For me, she's the OG. So Laura Adler, she's an environmental toxin. I mean, she's really an environmental toxins nerd, and that's what she calls herself. She's an expert and educator and certified holistic health coach who teaches other health coaches, nutritionists, and holistic health practitioners how to eliminate the number one thing holding their clients back from results they're seeking, the unaddressed link between chemicals and chronic health problems. She trains practitioners to become experts in everyday toxic exposures so they can improve client outcomes without spending hundreds of hours researching on their own. Combining environmental health education and business consulting, she's helped thousands of health professionals in over 25 countries around the world elevate their skill set, get better results for their clients, and become sought-after leaders in the growing environmental health and detoxification field. Welcome, Laura. But before I give you the floor, I was just telling Laura off air, she was in a virtual conference I attended last week, and she was one of the top two speakers in the conference. And we're going to kind of micro-focus on a couple topics today, even though they both deserve their own episode. But she went through, she is like a walking encyclopedia of environmental health statistics. And so I think like the research is so darn significant. It's cool to get to talk about it because it's kind of like... I try not to be a doomsdayer or like a, yeah. I try to spin it in a pretty positive direction. Like there's always something we can do about it, but we can't do anything about something we don't understand or don't know about. So here's Laura. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a giant topic, right? Like it is huge. And I think that when people first start learning about the extent of the problem, like there's this moment of like your hair gets blown back, your mind is blown. And then the like anxiety, panic and overwhelm ensues. And, you know, my goal is to shorten that experience so that we can shift into action because there is a lot of things that we can do to address the exposures that we're getting every day. Certainly we can't address all of them. We definitely need better regulation of chemicals in the marketplace and better regulation of like pollution from industry. So we need a top-down and a bottom-up approach. And my job is to help people with that bottom-up approach in as many places as I can. Yeah. Because that's, I think, the overwhelming part because it feels like... I always tell people like this isn't weird. The world is full of contaminants and toxins. And so we need our body to be able to manage and be resilient to that. And we got to give it support along the way. But identifying that low hanging fruit or some of those big, big factors is a big deal. And air is a big deal. So I have a client story that's going to help us jump off. And she was actually sort of the catalyst on me saying, oh my gosh, let's get Laura on the podcast because she would probably know much more about this because it's really specific. So this gal, it's really interesting because COVID lends itself to really interesting stories. They moved into a new work building a month before shutdown and everyone started working from home. So she goes into this new building and she's getting a little, she's starting to have some reactions, a little high beat, right? You don't think much of it because like it's a stressful time. She's in management here. And so then we're at home. And there's no problem, right? So she's home for two months and then she starts to go back to her job. And she came to me because I had worked with her husband on colitis stuff. And so, you know, it's sort of like, oh, weird. I'm, I walk into my workplace and I start to get hives and she wasn't sure if she believed it herself, right? She was like, 
doesn't really make sense. Why is this happening to me? I said, well, talk to some people that are around you, see if they're kind of sensitive to smells, et cetera. But what this amounted to is that her bucket was kind of full or her toxin load or her toxin bucket is really full. So she's walking in again. She doesn't necessarily believe it. And she has many like stay home, go back, stay home, go back until eventually literally she starts to break out in hives in front of other coworkers. And they are like, they're sending her home. They're mortified because they're kind of an environmental engineering company, quite frankly. So they're mortified. They're willing to do it. They're actually building a new place. Here's the trigger point because we weren't sure what it was. And that's what you're trying to figure out. It's like, what is it in this building? So they started doing error tests and we can talk about what are the options because they had a company come in and do some quality testing, but it's sort of like, well, what did they even test for? Right. And what we just, what we decided is that, and apparently this is a common thing that people who do this work know is a thing, but the floor above her floor had new carpet put in shortly before she went in and it was cheap carpet glue. And so it was the box from the cheap carpet glue. And apparently that makes some people flare quite significantly. It was kind of interesting in in how long it hung, right? And how it affected her, but not other people. So what do you think about this? (laughs) I mean, it sounds like it's a solvent issue, right? Like there's solvents that are in these adhesives that are used and, you know, the cheaper materials are going to be more problematic typically. And there's lots of instances of people actually having these instances of what eventually become diagnosed as multiple chemical sensitivity that are triggered by things like carpet installation or getting your carpets cleaned because, you know, when you get your carpets cleaned, even in a residential setting, it's typically not just like soap and water. There's all kinds of chemicals that are used and solvents to break up dirt. And then they're often, you know, treated with some kind of stain resistant chemical. And that's a tremendous amount of chemicals in an enclosed space. So there was even an incident, I think this was in the 90s, where there was a, I think it was a CDC office that had a similar incidence where they had new carpets installed and like everyone started getting really sick. And it was shortly after that, that the CDC implemented like a fragrance free policy in all of their buildings because they realized personal fragrances are different, certainly than chemicals in carpet installation, but like they recognized, Oh, duh, we're the centers for disease control. We shouldn't be bringing chemicals into our offices. So it is a significant issue. There's a lot of stories of people that have severe neurological issues after carpet installation. And it's, it's probably because of these solvents. The challenge is we don't actually know, right? Because we don't know what's in the solvents or we don't know what's in the adhesive. We don't know what's in the carpet itself, right? So it's maybe, yes, there's the carpet glue, but then there's the, also the carpet itself, which in an, can off gas and can contain other chemicals that can people can be reactive to, but we just have to make our best guess. Mm-hmm. But those adhesives are loaded with volatile organic solvents or compounds that are volatile solvents that can be uh, triggering for a lot of people. Well, let's back up because this has given us a platform to talk about Vox, but let's back up and talk about Vox in general. So volatile organic solvents or compounds, where are these found? How is this affecting us? Because we often, and I've said this a lot lately, we pretty much take our breath for granted, except for when there's wildfires where no one can breathe outside. So let's talk about what constitutes as Vox, the magnitude of this conversation in general, I think also maybe is a good place to insert like any stats on how this is basically probably unregulated in general, right? So like, 
what about high box stuff is low box like there's just anything about box yeah so first of all volatile organic compounds just simply means chemicals that volatize or dissipate at room temperature so gases uh, they rise into gases and i think it's worth stating that not all vocs are bad right vocs are scent so when you smell flour you're smelling volatile organic compounds. When you peel an orange in your house, you are releasing volatile organic compounds. So not all VOCs are toxic. Toxic VOCs are toxic. So it is sort of like the square is always a rectangle, but a rectangle isn't always a square or something like that. I don't remember. Going back to sixth grade algebra. Um, (laughs) But so VOCs are very significant is when we get into what are called the BTECs. So uh, butane, uh, I'm trying to remember all of them. There's toluene, there's xylene, there's ethylene, and butane. Those are the four, not in the right order, but that spell BTEX. And these are highly volatile compounds. These are all carcinogens. We also have chemicals like formaldehyde that can volatize. We even have chlorine that can volatize. So when we get in our shower, if we have chlorinated water, we are actually volatizing that chlorine so we can actually inhale those. So that's essentially what VOCs are. To your comment about, you know, are these regulated? It depends on where. So in a workplace, yes, this is why we have OSHA, right? That regulates air quality in a workplace. But when we're at home, where we also have these volatile organic compounds, there is no agency that regulates air quality inside your home. That's not, you know, a realistic place to be regulating, but we do have exposure to VOCs, you know, from the paint on our walls, from our plastic shower curtain, from the, you know, stain resistant treatments that we have in our furniture and our upholstery and our carpeting. So we are exposed to VOCs in a lot of different places. Certainly there's occupational exposures. If you're working at a gas station pumping gas, you are breathing in VOCs solvents all day all day long. I did this, you know, I went to pump gas or get my gas pumped yesterday. And, you know, I turned my car off before I could roll the window back up after giving him my credit card. And the whole time I was like, oh man, I am just breathing in benzene, which is, um, I think benzene is the BTEC. This is the problem when you know what it is. It's like, oh, this benzene. (laughs) I know. I know. know. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's not fantastic. It's the nerd. Yeah. It's the nerd. As I like to jokingly say, although it's it, there's truth behind it, is I can ruin anything. I need to have a podcast called Laura Ruins Everything. And I also jokingly say sometimes, you know, I, I feel like I know too much to live in the world at with ease. But there also comes with this sort of onslaught of information that for, like I said, a lot of people is overwhelming and scary is making sure that we're prioritizing the action steps. And I think, you know, taking as many steps as we can to start minimizing these exposures. And certainly within, you know, 2020 being a year that we are living through, and most of us are spending more time at home than ever before, we want to really be prioritizing what can I do to make the space that I live in as ideal as possible and making sure that we're not capturing, bringing in chemicals that will off-gas, that will volatilize, and making sure that we're giving an escape route for those chemicals that we do bring in. Mm. So addressing that is well, that's, pretty important. That's a great point because I think back to when we moved into this house that I live in now, and it was a new house, and we put carpet in two rooms. And I'm not an expert here, but apparently it's kind of common to like leave carpet outside for a day, maybe to let it off-gas or a couple of days, I think. 
I think, I think in, people will leave it in like a garage. I don't right. think they'll leave it out to the right. elements, but yes, because carpet is new carpet is very chemically laden, right? It smells bad. terrible. Yeah. It smells yeah. terrible. I was like nauseous. Couldn't sleep in my bedroom for a long time. It was like went on for weeks. What's normal for how long these things off gas? Because I really am like, I don't even like getting new things or, and how do you, yeah. I mean, it's not like I'm not familiar with like carpets that are like, Hey, cool. We're low Voc. <laughs> like I don't see that in right. marketing. It's probably, maybe it's a thing. There are some carpets that you can get that won't off gas. Certainly it's going to be less true when you get into the wall to wall carpeting space. In terms of how long these things off gas, some of these materials will off gas for the life of the product, like for as long as you have it. So the smell, the most of the off gassing will happen in the beginning, right? That's what you smell. But you just because you don't smell something doesn't mean it's not off gassing. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, you know, this is especially true with new construction, with new buildings, there's an incredible amount of off gassing, you know, because you've got all these brand new materials in the house at the same time new flooring, new sealant on the wood floors. If it's not wood floors, it's something that's got an adhesive underneath it. So you run into the adhesive problem. It's the building materials, the drywall, the paint on the walls, all of these materials off gas. And in some instances, they just off gas perpetually. And that's where we get into the like, okay, well, I can't disassemble my house and reassemble it with better materials. So there's always this threshold where we start going, okay, what can I change and what can't I change? And I'm going to sweat less the things I can't Mm -hmm. change because then you just get into anxiety and stress and that's toxic in a whole different way, right? So we want to focus on what we can do. And I think, you know, like we were chatting before we got started, I think the a point of conversation here in the what can I do is how can I clean the air inside my home so that I'm minimizing my own personal exposure to the chemicals that are undoubtedly going to be off-gassing and releasing from the items that are in my home that make my house a home, right? Like my furniture and my carpets. In terms of carpeting specific materials, like there are ways that you can get carpets that don't off-gas. There are companies that make synthetic carpets that are lower VOC. They're not no VOC, but they're lower VOC. I know Floor, F-L-O-R, is a company that makes like floor tiles. They're pretty expensive. So they're certainly not for everybody, but they claim to be low VOC. You know, I think that what I encourage people to look for in carpeting is natural materials. So jute, sisal, cotton, wool, and this is an aesthetic thing, but all of the carpets in my home are, you know, vintage Oriental, Persian, for wherever they're from in the world, rugs that are made of natural materials and natural dyes. And those can be cleaned. So with wall-to-wall carpeting, it's really hard to properly clean them because then they stay, aside from the chemicals that are used, they tend to stay damp for a little while and that becomes a potential mold issue. So there's just, I'm not a big fan of wall-to-wall carpeting, even aside from the VOC component, they are receptacles for all of the chemicals that are off-gassing or migrating out of our materials. Carpets are just a magnet for that. And so if we can minimize carpet use in general, we can certainly 
minimize our exposures. So right. if you've ever yeah. pulled carpet out, you know how like disgusting all the secrets. Oh, the underside, it's like a whole nother carpet of dirt. Yeah. Yes. It's yeah, like a carpet. Of dirt. Exactly. I read somewhere that somebody said that like when you have old carpet, the weight of the carpet because of all the dirt and dander and pet hair and bacteria and whatever is like twice the weight of a new carpet because there's just an ecosystem under there. I know. I know. I have like a couple of bedrooms of carpet and I already hate. There's like a substantial difference between there's different quality. Anyway, it doesn't matter, but it's interesting and it's good for us to just be aware of. So I was like kind of three more points around Vox or air quality in general. So I'm going to list those. I want to talk about what are people testing for if they are like, what are some common things that people... So in the example of my client, some environmental company came in and tested, but they were looking at molds, mycotoxins, et cetera. And so it's like, how do you even... like People don't... We don't even know what to do. So I want to talk about testing. I want to talk about smoke residue because that can be a real like backhand slap because smoke residue hangs out. I've got another client who's like, oh my gosh, I can now smell the smoke residue that's in our house that I couldn't... I didn't know was there anyway. So smoke residue and kind of how that permeates. And then... Let's summarize it with positivity on here are some simple things we can do. Yeah, absolutely. So the first question around testing, I don't have an easy answer for testing. There are not inexpensive commercially available tests that will test the air quality in your home. They tend to be expensive. Companies tend to either you know, need to come by with all this technical equipment and set it up. And then they take the equipment with them or they send you the equipment, you set it up and then you send it back. And certainly there are less expensive home testing kits that are available. They tend to be nonspecific in the data that they present to you. So for example, they're going to test for VOCs, but they don't tell you what VOCs. And if you don't know what the VOC is, it's hard for you to pinpoint. Um, They might test for humidity, but like, okay, humidity is certainly a factor if we're thinking about mold, but You can also go buy a $4 hygrometer on Amazon and test your humidity that way, just as you can keep an eye on it. So if humidity is a concern, which it is a concern, people can just go buy an inexpensive hygrometer. It's H-Y-G-R-O, hygrometer online or at a hardware store, and they can keep an eye on their relative humidity. That's more relevant for the mold conversation, but it is also relevant to the VOC conversation because some chemicals will volatilize more in a more humid environment. And if you uh, live in the Southeast US or the Northwest US, you should probably go do this because I feel like those are like mold magnets because they're very- Oh, completely, magnets. completely. And mold, mold releases VOCs, right? They're called mycotoxins. The reason why you smell, I mean, again, anything that we smell is a volatile organic compound. A mold releases these MVOCs. Those are sometimes more toxic than the mold spores themselves. And on the other end of the spectrum, like when you smell a flower, you're smelling VOCs. So we don't want to just kind of make the assumption that all VOCs are bad. But again, we do have many VOCs in our environment that are bad. So back to testing, you know, there's not a lot of easily accessible tools and resources. I think if somebody is going to go find some environmental services company that can do indoor air quality testing, that you're asking them to really itemize what they're testing for specifically. Is there benzene? Is there toluene? Is there formaldehyde? If there's formaldehyde, for example, we can at least go, oh, yeah, so I had new kitchen cabinets installed last month. It's probably coming from that. So it helps you at least identify a potential source in figuring it out because it's kind of like, okay, well, 
how is that information of what's in your home useful for you if you don't know where it's coming from or don't know what to do with it, right? Then it just becomes expensive testing. Certainly for mycotoxins, there's a lot of debate on air sample testing in the mold space of whether or not it's actually helpful. So that's my thoughts on testing. Cool. Yeah, we can talk about mold another day. Yes, that's a whole other beast. Okay, what was the second question that you asked? Well, I was just going to comment first on the testing. Like one of the things that we experienced with this client with the carpet glue issue is that it was like, oh, well, this testing didn't tell us really anything because it, it was tell you anything for humidity or whatever. And if we don't know what solvent that the carpet glue is off gassing, then we wouldn't even know what to look for on the test anyway. You know, fortunately, her company was really supportive, but she felt crazy. Right. And I'm like, you're not crazy. <laughs> you very clearly, you tested this. Like you walk in, you get hives, you leave, you're fine. <laughs> like yeah. you're not crazy. Your I know body's not lying to you. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Let's talk about... I had smoke residues. And oh, yes, 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 yes. Mm-hmm. So what you're talking about is referred to as third-hand smoke. So first-hand smoke is smoking. Second-hand smoke is like, you know, breathing the air of somebody, somebody's sort of passive cigarette smoke. Third-hand smoke is when you have those smoke particles, all the carcinogens that are present in cigarette smoke, sticking to surfaces, to your clothes, to your furniture. I mean, you can walk into somebody's house, even if nobody's smoking for weeks, And you can go, ah, smoker lives here, right? Like it's really strong. And those chemicals will really permeate into textiles, into fabrics, into carpeting. So, you know, those things really need to be thrown out and replaced. In terms of this long lingering cigarette smoke on ceilings and on walls, like that's a lot of times, even if the place is empty and there's no furniture in there and it's been cleaned and mopped and vacuumed and it still smells like cigarette smoke, it's because all of those things are just stuck to all of the surfaces. And so in those instances, what you really want to do is you want to do a deep clean. You want to scrub the walls and the ceiling with soap right? This is where something like Branch Basics would come in handy because it's a non-toxic cleaning product that doesn't have any fragrances. And it is a process of sort of deep cleaning a space to physically remove the soot and the chemicals that have adhered to these surfaces. So it is a big, tall order to get rid of that smoke. I mean, certainly laundering your clothes, if you have the ability to do that, But third-hand smoke is a significant source of exposure to the benzenes and toluenes. The other chemicals, in addition to just the small particulate matter, which is so damaging to the lungs, that's sort of like the forest fire conversation, right? That that PM 2.5 and smaller that's in the home. You know, an interesting tool for people that are living in a place where there is cigarette smoke or there's forest fire risk or there's just general concern of monitoring air quality. I have a, I think it was like 120 bucks on Amazon. I don't have it handy in front of me, but there is a small portable electric device that measures PM 2.5, that measures formaldehyde and it measures total VOCs. So it's not telling me what VOCs, it's just saying total VOCs. So if I open a bottle of essential oil near this device, the VOCs are going to go through the roof, right? Because those are volatile organic compounds. But it allows me to keep my eye on the particulate count in my home. And, you know, one thing that has been really interesting is I had it in the kitchen. And when I cook that particulate matter, the PM 2.5 count goes through the roof. 
Why is it 2.5? What does this mean? 2.5 is just the size. It's like a 2.5 microns. And 2.5 and smaller are these ultrafine particles that can embed into our lung tissue and start causing inflammation in the lungs and some love downstream health risks because of that. So that's the most damaging. And that PM 2.5 air pollution, and this is also includes air pollution outside. So when we live in a heavily polluted city, if we live near a highway, if we live near an airport, we are going to have higher levels of that PM 2.5. It's ultrafine particles that are typically a result of combustion. So car engines, forest fires, right? They're combustion particles or byproducts. And anything, again, that's 2.5 microns in size or smaller can cause some serious damage to the lungs and respiratory issues. It goes right into the bloodstream. Like it's really, really problematic. This is partly why we have issues in this country and certainly globally with uh, disproportionate health effects seen in different communities, particularly in black and brown communities here in the United States, because those communities are often found or placed in areas that have more industry, right? That's producing more pollution. And so that is going to mean that the air quality in those neighborhoods is a lot worse. And because of that, or at least partly because of that, we are seeing a increase in chronic disease that's associated with poor air quality. So I just think that having this PM 2.5 measurement tool in the house is interesting. I can tell you that during the forest fires that we had earlier this summer in Portland, it was not great to have on the one hand, because more data isn't always more helpful. So when I was looking at my PM 2.5 count in my living room being over 500, that was really stressful mm-hmm. because that's really bad. That's yeah. really, really bad. So well, more data is not always more helpful. Right. I think about it's nice to see it, right? Like that. that's kind of a, a nice tool to just observe. But if you don't necessarily have a baseline, if it's always high, I'm just thinking about what we can do. And I also was thinking with washing stuff, I mean, dry cleaning doesn't really help because this is also a chemical These thing. are solvents. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of a side note, right? Because we would naturally think, oh, I should take these curtains and have them dry sometimes, right? If they're not really super washable. Yeah. I mean, I really encourage people to not purchase clothes that requires dry cleaning for that reason. And instead, if you can find them and they're harder to find because they're just so expensive to operate, there are places that have what's called wet cleaning, Mm-hmm. Uh, or CO2 cleaning. That is far superior choice to dry cleaning. Dry cleaning uses perchloroethylene, also abbreviated as PERC. This is a neurotoxic solvent. And you smell it the second you walk into a dry cleaning facility. It's that sweet smell. If you get your dry cleaned, your clothes dry cleaned, it comes in that little plastic sleeve and you just hang that in your closet. You're actually extending the amount of time and slowing down that migration of those VOCs, which is just extending your exposure. We hang those in our bedroom closets and we can jack up our VOC exposure just by bringing dry cleaned clothing into the bedroom. So um, not a fan of that. So I'm thinking about what we can do about this that's reasonable. And the first things I think about are house plants, which is a challenge for some people like me who can't keep things alive (laughs) and also getting out the like fragrances and things in the house, right? Yeah, that's the easiest thing that, you know, I think a lot of people think that in this space of addressing toxins, like, 
oh, it's really expensive. If you stop buying scented candles and air fresheners and Febreze and diffusers and all that stuff, these reed diffusers, that's going to save you money that you can then apply to something else, maybe like an air filter. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the first thing to cleaning up our indoor air quality, whether they're VOCs or other compounds that are in the air, is just to not bring in these heavily fragranced items or fragranced items, period. And that's process. I Certainly people can just ditch the scented candle. Even if you're not lighting the scented candle, just ditch it. Because if you can smell it, the VOCs are being released. It is worse when you are lighting them. All the air fresheners and sprays, like just toss those. There's no reason to have those. If you want your house to smell like something, use a good quality essential oil. Like I said earlier, those are still VOCs, but they seem to be less harmful. And in fact, many of those essential oils can actually be therapeutic. Use the right way, which most people, frankly don't use them the right way. So certainly getting rid of those fragrance items, opening your windows is a big thing that everybody can do, even if you live in a polluted city. And the reason why I say that is EPA has found this, indoor air quality can be five to 10, all the way up to a hundred times worse than air outside. And remember, no one regulates air inside. So it's up to us to make sure that it's clean. And that happens because we build our homes to be really energy efficient and we want to save on heating and cooling costs. And so we keep the house as airtight as possible. But what that means is we don't give the chemicals that are present in our air the opportunity to escape. And so we want to increase what's called air exchange, which is just fresh air for stale air. And we do that by opening the windows. I do this in the winter time. I'll do a circuit in my house where I'll open up all the windows and then I'll hang out for a couple minutes and then I'll just go around and close all the windows that I just opened because it helps get that stale air out. Certainly in the time of COVID, I think this is a great idea. This is why outdoor dining is permitted is because there's plenty of air exchange. And so I think that's a simple thing that everybody can do. To your point about houseplants, yes, there is some research that shows that House plants have the ability to sequester some of these VOCs like formaldehydes and benzenes and toluenes in their soil and root systems, which is great. The flip side to that is too many house plants increases humidity and increases potential for mold growth. So it's a balance, just like everything else. Mm -hmm. Certainly, there are people that are hypersensitive to mold that really shouldn't have any house plants, which is a bummer because I love plants. Beyond that, we're really looking at getting some kind of air filtration. And there's two things to consider here. If people have an HVAC system, so heating, ventilation, and cooling system, they have central air or a forced air heating and cooling system. You want to make sure that you're getting your ducts cleaned pretty regularly. It doesn't have to be every year. It can be every couple of years, but getting your ducts cleaned is great because less from a VOC perspective, but more from a dust perspective, and certainly from a cigarette smoking perspective. So you want to get those ducts cleaned as much as possible. And you want to make sure that your furnace has a air filter in it, It has a furnace filter. And the furnace filter should be basically, they're called MERV ratings. I can't remember what MERV stands for. They're MERV ratings and they come in, you know, MERV 6, MERV 8, MERV 10, MERV 12. You want to really be looking at a MERV 12 or above. You want the highest MERV rating that your furnace can handle. And what that means, the higher the MERV rating, the better the particulate capture. So that's particles, whether it's dust or mold spores or cigarette smoke particles, the higher the number, the more capture. You don't want to go over what the capacity of your furnace is. Otherwise, you'll burn out your furnace because it's got to work really, really hard to get air through that tighter filter system. So that can actually have a huge impact. 
Second, and this is my sort of hack for anybody that lives in an area that potentially can have forest fires. I think this is a imperative in addition to like the flash lamps and the N95 masks that we're going to just live with having if we live in these fire prone areas is we want to have one or two $20 box fans, those little cheap window fans that go in your window and a couple of 20 by 20 by one inch furnace filters, Merv 12 or above. And we can take the, for $25, $30, you can make a really effective air filter. You don't spend $600 or $900 on an air filter. These filters will do an incredible job at capturing that particulate matter that's so dangerous in a forest fire situation. They're not really appropriate for everyday use, but for an emergency situation, I think it's like, if you live in a fire prone area, have these in your emergency kit. Cool. I have a couple questions about what you just talked about. So that was a great tip. You talked about cleaning vents, which made me think about, so a couple vent and dust questions. So is there a DIY option for people cleaning their vents or do you have to find a service that just comes in? You really should find a service and they should you know, make sure that all the vents are sound, meaning that there's not leaks. And they'll do this with like negative air pressure machines to see if there's a leak in the system somewhere. They should not be using any chemicals to clean. They should be using an air pressure to clean it. So they use a high pressure air hose to basically blow through the system, and then they capture it all outside in their machine. That is the ideal way. You don't really want to be introducing chemicals into your HVAC system. It's not a good idea. Okay. When I heard you speak last, you gave a great stat about how babies have, or children that are crawling around on the floor in dust, had higher, I think, phthalate marker. Well, they have higher everything. They have higher everything. It's because of dust. Yes. So our dust is a major exposure source to this cocktail of chemicals, you know, whether it's a volatile chemicals or semi-volatile chemicals like phthalates, which are, you know, in all these fragranced items, or if it's the pesticides that you're tracking in from walking through your neighbor's yard or your yard or the park that you just went to, to the heavy metals and particulate matter, because you walked down the sidewalk and all the car exhaust from all the cars that drive by blow particulate matter. So you track all that stuff in. I think people think of house dust as being like dander and pet hair and dead skin cells and stuff like that. But it is all of these chemicals too. And there have been house dust studies, which is like, I always say like, this is the most boring topic ever. Nobody likes talking about house dust. But there are these house dust studies that sort of basically measure what are the contaminants that are found in people's house dust, and they're very much a reflection of what is brought into the home. But phthalates, which are these endocrine disrupting chemicals that are found in fragranced products and different types of plastics, phthalates have been found in 100% of samples taken from around the world of house dust. And so to your comment, babies and small children have much higher levels of these chemicals in their bodies even then the adults living in the same household. And the reason for that is one, their detoxification systems are not fully developed. So they don't yet have that ability to detoxify these compounds as well as their sort of adult family members do. They also, like you said, are crawling around on the floor. They have increased hand to mouth behavior, meaning they're putting everything in their mouths. And so they're ingesting more of these chemicals than adults do. And then pound for pound compared to adults, 
babies drink more water, they breathe more air, and they have more skin that's also more absorptive because it's so delicate. And so they're getting all of these exposures. And there was a couple of sort of small case studies where they took body burden samplings of, you know, what are the chemicals that are found in, you know, blood and urine in all of the members of a single household. So mom, dad, you know, little kid, and then the baby. And the baby had the highest levels because of everything that I just explained. Incidentally, the other family member, if you will, this wasn't in this study, but there's a lot of research that shows that pets are sentinels for this exposure, specifically cats, because cats are groomers. And when they're grooming their fur, they're ingesting dust because they're, what do they do? They hide under the couch, they're on the couch, they're on the floor, they're rolling around the carpets, right? And so they're ingesting all of that. And because of the presence, particularly of flame retardants, which migrate out of upholstered furniture, flame retardants or thyroid suppressants, there has been in the last couple of decades, a spike in feline hypothyroidism. So the veterinary community is like, pinpointing or, you know, pointing their finger at these halogenated compounds, these thyroid suppressing compounds in house dust and in our, you know, upholstered furniture. So it's a real issue. I think people sometimes like to dismiss these as being non-issues, but they are real significant issues. Yeah. I think that's a great segue. I do have one more question about that we didn't talk about for ozone related to smoke, but let's talk about what happens if we don't do something about this. I know there's a lot of stats and they're a little depressing and we've given some good tips on what people can do right now to improve this. Like it's more about, oh shoot, this is kind of magnificent. And I think sometimes people also get frustrated. I work with skin issues and a lot of times that's something someone's already done is like, oh, I've cleaned up this or cleaned up that and it makes a difference. I'm like, dude, it's like a whole bucket. So you're doing good work. It's a good thing. It's not hurting anything. It's good for your hormones. It's good for your skin. It's good for all these things. So it's okay. Your efforts are definitely not in vain. It's just that there's a lot of things building up before you get to symptomatic places. So what happens if we don't improve our environment? And maybe we can say it around, but like you can just give some examples and maybe we should have started here, but here's where. Yeah, no, that's okay. I mean, look, these exposures are linked to pretty much most chronic illnesses and sometimes even acute illnesses, you know, immune system issues, even COVID, right? A lot of this particulate matter issue and this air pollution makes people more vulnerable to dangerous effects or the more concerning serious health effects from things like COVID. So it's not just these longer term chronic health issues. It can be acute health issues and more susceptibility to viruses, to infection, et cetera. But, you know, when we're talking about these volatile organic compounds or phthalates or endocrine disrupting chemicals, you know, the health effects are far reaching. Everything from, you know, issues with fertility and healthy pregnancies to, you know, fetal developmental issues, neurological issues in babies, um, behavioral issues in children because of in utero exposures, birth defects, increased risks of you know, breast cancer, uterine cancer, ovarian cancer, testicular cancer, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, like you name it, neurological issues like dementia and Alzheimer's, ADHD, autism, like allergies, asthma, like we can just go on. So like that is the sort of end point of not addressing or not doing anything about these exposures. It's not that we are going to get those illnesses. It's that to your point, we are overburdening our bucket 
And basically the way that I sometimes look at it, just spread the analogy a little bit thin, is like where your bucket overflows. Which side of the bucket overflows is really dependent upon what is your genetic weak link? What else is going on with you? If you have a genetic susceptibility to cancer and you're exposed to all of these carcinogens and your detoxification pathways are not adequate to deal with and kind of keep you healthy, then if that's your weak link, then that's how it might show up for you. But the same exposures to environmental chemicals don't manifest in the same symptoms for everyone. And this is why it's really challenging because we can't point the finger and say, haha, it was this mm-hmm. all the time. So the idea is, again, to your point about this bucket analogy, and the way that my analogy is a rowboat analogy, it's a little bit different than a bucket, but it's like, If you were in a rowboat and the rowboat sprung a hole in the bottom and water was coming in, just because your boat has a bucket that you can bail out, right? That's your detox process. Doesn't mean the bucket can keep up with the amount of water that's coming in. And if you get fatigued from doing nothing but detoxing all the goddamn time, then eventually you're just going to get overwhelmed and your boat's going to fill with water and you're going to sink and drown. In a real life situation, if you were in a boat, what is the very first thing that you're going to do if it has a hole in it? You are going to find a way to plug the hole, period. And that is what we need to do as it pertains to these environmental exposures. We need to stop or at least slow the amount of water that's coming in to weigh our boat down. We, yes, we have a bucket that can bail it out and we have to do everything we can to make that bucket larger right? That we need to make sure that we're pooping. We need to make sure that we're peeing, that we're sweating, that we're eating all of the nutrient dense food that become the resources that our liver, for example, will use to help metabolize these compounds. So, you know, the way that I look at it is we have to do two things and we have to do them concurrently. We have to minimize our exposure. So we turn the volume down on our exposure while turning the volume up on our detoxification capacity. And that's really where we get into disease risk mitigation. We have to do both. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Love it. And this is my weak link. Like my genetics for this suck. So it's always a fun topic for me. And I can't wait till we get to part two, which I'm roping you into on water because we didn't, because <laughs> you know, you can't get through all of this. But right. and that, that would have been a great place to stop and to talk about where people can find you, which we will do in a moment. But I just can't stop. So I want to ask about oh, one good. thing related yes. to in hotels, often they use an ozone machine to kind of like yeah. help with smoke. Is this effective? I feel like it should be. It is. I think we ride a fine line there because first of all, when we think of ozone, we think of the ozone layer, ozone up high in the atmosphere, very good. Ozone down low, not good. Caveat, there are instances in which medically used ozone can be hugely valuable. The difference between medical applications of ozone is that it's always in a essentially like an airtight system. So it's injected into the body, it's in suffocation. So it's a basically blowing ozonated air into a vaginal or a rectal cavity or something like that. But when we're inhaling ozone, it is quite dangerous. When we live in, in places in California, we'll actually have during ozone days, they have warnings about you know being outside, but they also have warnings, oh, this is so interesting, about citrus-based cleaners. This would also apply to citrus-based essential oil compounds because the terpenes that are naturally present in citrus react with ozone to create these secondary byproducts of formaldehyde. So it actually produces formaldehyde in the air. So that is a well-established carcinogen. 
not okay for us to do that. So yes, ozone, whether it's cigarette smoke or mold, same topic around ozone is people say, oh, just pump ozone into your house. Well, you can't be there. It's very dangerous for anything to be present if you're pumping ozone, ozonated air into an environment. You really have to make sure that one, once that's done, that nobody's in the area. So if they're going to close the whole hotel down, I think it's scary that they do this in hotel rooms because they do have air systems that are bringing air. They have circulated air. It's not like the room is hermetically sealed, right? If the room was hermetically sealed and they're pumping ozone in and there's no guests coming and going, and then they can open the windows, which you typically can't do in a hotel room, right? To increase that air exchange, what are they doing to clean the air after it has been treated? Mm-hmm. And unless they're washing all the surfaces, I just don't think, I think ozone is in that application is questionable and not advised. It can work to get rid of cigarette smoke, but you're swapping one problem for a potential other problem. Interesting. Cool. So much to uncover and yeah. education is good. And I know your business is really focused on fast tracking this. So it's not so overwhelming because it is kind of an overwhelming topic, which is the main part of it. So where can people find you online and connect or learn more about this? Yeah, people can just go to my website, which is lauraadler.com. It's L-A-R-A-A-D-L-E-R.com. And certainly over on Instagram at environmental toxins nerd. There's a ton of info there. I always encourage people to drop into my DMs or shoot me a comment. There's a ton. I mean, there's at this point, there's 800 plus posts on that feed. So there is a large volume of education for free to be found over on Instagram. But if someone's a a health professional and they're really wanting to dig into this, I would encourage you to check out my website and the courses that I have. Thank you, Laura. We'll look forward to hearing from you again soon. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stressed Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stressed Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 